on the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast. A lot of people have been asking us about the International Double Re Society Conference and what that is and what's it all about um, because it sounds like a shady international organization having its meetings across the globe. So, of course, it's going to pique some interest. How many have you been to, Ethan? I went to Provo and then uh, Tempe. That was it. So, Were you working for both of those? No, I just went. So I wasn't wasn't working for uh, the Provo one. I just went. Was there anything um, that stood out? Chris Millard, um, man, his his master class was pretty phenomenal. Um, oh yeah, that was the one I played in. It was the only time I played in a master class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was glad I wasn't up there. That's for sure. He said the nicest thing though. At the end of it, he said to me, "Well, if you play like that in an audition, I'd hire you." Yeah, I remember that. That never happened. <laughs> you never played like that, no, or I guess not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I remember that masterclass specifically because it was very like the the things that he would say seemed very simple but difficult to execute which I think is a pretty good description of how wait, wait, say that again? simple but very difficult to execute yeah huh. so like just one example was like play an F scale yeah and keep the um, keep the intensity of the that's, sound that's right the same. I, I was very proud I was the only one <laughs> yeah. there were like four or five of us playing for him and before we played any excerpt he said play a one I think a one octave F yeah. major scale and I was the only one who didn't make repeat it twice. Really? Because I was the only one who just naturally crescendoed as you went up. And that all happened because I did the Hertzberg exercises with Glenn, who just beat me mercilessly with scales for an entire summer. So I, t- I remember I told Glenn about that afterwards. Like, I was the only guy who didn't have to play the scale twice. And Glenn's like, you're welcome. <laughs> I heard a, a rumor about a, an audition for a professional orchestra for bass and the one thing that they had everybody do was play a scale I think an E major scale and he said based on that we could have made our decision about who gets the job just based on the scale wow wow yeah. hmm. he was so surprised and amazed how difficult it was for a bunch of people to play a scale well hmm do you guys have you run across this um blog called Bulletproof Musician. Oh, I've heard of that. But I don't think I've seen it or read it. Um, lots of interesting stuff. I really like it. Uh, some of it is kind of, I guess, the way Ethan put it, some of it seems self-evident on the surface, but becomes really, um, I don't know, it's good stuff. But there's a uh, one of the entries 
uh, I think he titled if I had it to do over again I would spend a lot more time on my scales and he talks about seeing a professional cellist he is a cellist who was given a master class and just spent the first 10 minutes playing a scale same scale but um, would bow it differently each time uh, but just the ability to have so much variety in uh, the style or the particular bow techniques of, of playing the scale and yet to have it sound so effortless and perfect every single time. Um, and that's, that's where Norman Hertzberg was so successful right. with all of his students. I think if he had an hour-long lesson with him, 20 minutes of it would be non-musical stuff playing the instrument just becoming a master of the instrument right. and if you go through his scale exercises it goes through all the different articulations different groupings the full range of the instrument and different dynamic levels and different speeds so there's no place to hide and if you if you're forced to do that stuff you will become <laughs> much <Master>. better yeah. <laughs> is that published um yeah you can find it online I don't. I don't know if he ever actually wrote it out, but Ben Kamen's wrote it out, and I think Kristen Wolf Jensen wrote it out. So there's the scale exercises, and then there's another page for his long tone. And there's not much to write out. It's just like here's the pattern, and then you plug it in to all the different scales. Right. again I am completely out of reeds and I am out of cane. Where can I go to refill my supply? You should go to Barton Cane. They have a wide selection of, of different cane you can choose from and customizable solutions. Ooh, that sounds fancy Ethan. What's customizable solutions mean? They can customize the type of cane that you're getting as well as the shape and the gouge and the profile to just your liking. That's insane. Where do I go to find this? You can go to bartoncane.com. I'm there. A quick glance at their website says that they have not only the Fox 2 shape and the Hertzberg shape and the Rieger 1A shape and some others, but they also have the Kristen Wolf Jensen Artist Series, the Gabriel Beavers Artist Series, and the Jeff Kiesker Artist Series. If you want to sound like Kristen Wolf Jensen, go to bartoncane.com. And practice more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the bassoon enthusiast in your life, I think they definitely need to be able to swag out. I think they can do that with a Boulder Bassoon Quartet t-shirt. These are available at our website, boulderbassoons.com. Well, you could get them our latest CD. It's also our only CD. <laughs> <laughs> and where is that available? It's available on our website, boulderbassoons.com. And it's available on the website of our sponsor, Forest Music. Forest Music is a supplier of fine bassoon and oboe supplies. They have everything you need as a professional or enthusiast. That's forestsmusic.com.
between the four of us, the conferences that we've been to include Ithaca, Provo, Tempe, and you were at another one in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it? Norman. Oh, uh, you went to Norman? And Greensboro. How was Norman? Norman was pretty good. Yeah. Um, Ithaca was such a great conference, I thought. It was hard to live up to that. Um, but there were there were several really good things about Norman, uh, and I definitely enjoyed it. Um, and then I went to New York this summer. Yeah. And that will be really tough to top. I'm sure. I, first of all, I just love being in New York, and that was really nice. And then the... Um, all the vendors were located on floors like six through nine of some building in NYU. So you had a pretty nice view of Washington Square Park and the whole whole area down there. It's really cool. There was one day where I uh, I had some time to kill in between events. So Cody and I went walking around Washington Square Park, and I heard there there was this group that I heard just by accident on iTunes Radio, and I liked their tune. So I looked them up on Spotify. And guess what I heard in Washington Square Park? I heard one of their tunes. What group is this? They're called Moon Hooch. Moon Hooch. It's a trio. Barry Sax, tenor sax, and a drummer. And they play what sounds almost like electronic dance music. But, you know, acoustic. So anyway, I heard their music playing. And sure enough, I look over and it's them playing live, busking on uh, Washington Square Park. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then later on in the week in Washington Square Park, they had a concert, and they also had a double read flash mob, <laughs> led by a drag queen. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that was fun. So it'll be tough to top that. Tokyo, I imagine, will be awesome, but not quite as vivacious. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to finding out what the energy is like there. Vivacious or otherwise. Yeah, I think it should be really interesting. It'll definitely be, it'll be an international mix, right. so that'll add in a bunch of energy. But we'll be located in what I get the feeling is a kind of separated space. This uh, the Olympic Park. Yeah. So I think we'll be in our own little world, not really part of Tokyo, you know. Whereas the conference in New York was definitely in New York. Um, didn't you say, Brian, that uh, Cowdy's dad had something to say about the difference between Japanese and American orchestras? What was that? All right, so Cowdy's parents came out here in October. And at one point, I started talking with their dad, and I said, what's, what's the difference between American orchestras and Japanese orchestras? And before I reveal what he said, what do you guys... I mean, you haven't been to Japan yet. We're, go, we're on our way. But what do you think, uh, what, what would be your preconceived notion about a Japanese orchestra and the way it would approach music differently or the way it would sound differently compared to an American orchestra? I would think the orchestra would reflect what I would think about Japanese musicians in general, which they tend to be like absolutely technically flawless, right? Uh-huh. So I would think that maybe an orchestra made up of those type of musicians might be a very technically flawless kind of orchestra. And the flip side of that, maybe musically there's not as much emphasis? That would be my assumption, too. I've seen two orchestras perform in Japan, um, Kyoto Philharmonic, and there's a part of Tokyo called Opera City, apparently. And we went there and saw one of their orchestras play. 
um, first of all, the, the concert hall situation in Japan is fantastic because instead of having churches on every corner, they seem to have a little concert hall on every corner. And the concert halls that we went into were um, new, beautiful, sounded great, and I think a lot of it was paid for by uh, the government. So anyway, my assessment is basically what you just said. Um, everybody played absolutely flawlessly. We went to Cowdy's High School and a, a quartet of saxophone players played something and they just tore right through. I think they were only juniors and they sounded absolutely flawless. It was amazing. And the, the musicality aspect of it, I mean, I'm not saying it was unmusical or boring or by anything by those means, but it was not as lively as I would have liked. And the tone that we heard for bassoon was pretty dark, um, much more German in style, I think, than what we have here in America. So Mr. Uno said that he thinks Japanese orchestras are more emotional. Hmm. That's interesting. That's yeah. kind of like the opposite of what we were yeah. preconceiving. And it's something that I, you know, kind of stuck with me because it was a surprise to me. I would not have guessed that. And he, by the way, I should mention, is a musician. He plays in an orchestra. He plays the bassoon, which is why Cowdy got started on the bassoon. Um, so he plays with a community orchestra. Do you think it just has to do with um, different conceptions of how to convey emotion? I'm sure that's part of it, but how do you... How do I put that into words for a podcast? I can't. How, how do you make that happen as a musician? Different ways to play musically, different ways to convey emotion... Well, I mean, some of it's going to be dynamics. You can do a lot with articulation. Yeah. Do different cultures look for different things? I think so. Yeah. I also get the sense that, you know, El Sistema, you guys have heard of El Sistema? Mm -hmm. That's down in Venezuela, right? Yeah, it started there, and it's this program where the government, or I, I think the government, somehow pays for music lessons for well, everybody. Somehow is mm. oil. Oh, Okay. So they put an instrument in everybody's hands and the kids go to music lessons and they play in orchestras and it became this this whole cultural movement, not just a after-school program. Um, Gustavo Dudamel, who's the conductor of the LA Phil, is a product of El Sistema. And El Sistema has caught on across the globe. There's an El Sistema Colorado. There's an El Sistema pretty much every place. Um, and if you see videos of those kids playing, on YouTube or whatever, it's insanely impressive yeah. how how much how into it they all are, yeah. as opposed to what you often see with like American kids or whoever. So that's kind of what uh, what I, what I've been thinking about. I would guess, and I, I need to talk with him more about. I think the musicality that we all play with in America is planned out. Oh, yeah. Very, yep. very much so. Uh, yes. Which mm -hmm. probably takes away something or another. Sure. But it, it's so important for us to do that as orchestral musicians because you've got to coordinate with everybody and plan it all out, and you've got such little rehearsal time and stuff. But maybe they approach things a little bit differently in Japan. I don't know. The other thing is if you're, if you're in a sort of a society where everybody's a little more conservative emotionally then a little bit maybe goes a long way so if you exhibit any kind of emotion and that's more impactful mm. then it might be here 
if a person coming from a society that allegedly doesn't display emotion as much comes to America, wouldn't the emotion in an American orchestra go a long way? Well, I imagine the setting would have something to do with it. So like if an American orchestra came to Japan, then you might say, wow, that was really lively and you know emotional. Mm. But if you go to America and you're living and breathing American culture, an orchestra doesn't really stand out like the experience yeah. that you have. So you know, everybody's sitting still yeah. and then yeah. when everything's done, you clap. If you went to a rock concert or something, that might be different. I don't or know. if you went to... Um, Bolivar-Bassoon Quartet concert. Well, there's that. So I thought the whole thing was very interesting. And now I'm looking forward to going to Japan and, and seeing how things sound over there. Hopefully we'll have the opportunity to go see something outside of the conference because the international conference will be, you know, kind of on par with American stuff, much more so than if we were to go find a totally Japanese experience. And you know what I just started thinking of would be kind of cool is if we could do something in Cuba now that that's legal. But they probably don't have a division of the International Library Society in Cuba. Cuba. <laughs> the Havana chapter. Right. <laughs> so there's a, a quick synopsis of the International Library Society Conference, which happens every year. Um, and a brief look at what we'll be getting ourselves into as we go to Tokyo in August of 2015. See you there.